0: When I was in high school, I got into steelhead fishing with my grandpa. Uh, We used to fish the Klamath River often, and one of the tributaries of the Klamath River was the the, uh, Scott River. And the Scott River was uh, where I caught my first steelhead, and I caught it it on a wobble-right lure, gold spoon, and it thrilled my soul, and I became a fisherman at that point. Uh, I graduated from fishing with lures to fishing with roe, which is fish eggs, and then I graduated from there to fly fishing. And so now I'm an officially uh, fisherman. Um, the fly fishing requires some skill, of which I have not mastered, um, to present the fly, uh, the um, artificial insect, to the fish so that they'll take the bait, take some skill. But I feel actually sorry for flies, I mean for for fish these days because of the flies. Seems that they are at an unfair disadvantage. All the things that are available to fishermen to lure and entice fish really give them no chance. And it seems that the Christian life is a lot like that. We are kind of like fish, are we not? Uh, We encounter lures and artificial things that attract us and many times catch us and get us into trouble. I'm certain you've been there. Like King David that we just heard read to us uh, in our scripture reading, he was lured, caught in sin, caused all sorts of trouble for him that dogged him the rest of his life. You know the story. Today I'm going to try to explain an important passage of scripture, and it's important because it identifies the source of temptation. If you're going to beat temptation, it's good to know where it comes from. It's also gonna speak to us about the extreme danger of temptation and the way of escape from temptation. For these reasons, I'm excited to preach to you this morning from James chapter one, verses 12 through 18. So if you have a Bible, I'd ask you to open it to that passage, James chapter one, verses 12 through 18. But before I begin reading, listen to this, this quote from one of our favorites here at Sun Valley, John Owen. He said in his great book, Overcoming Sin and Temptation, from which I'll quote a few times this morning, when sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone, but as sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet and its waters are for the most part deep when they are still, so ought our contrivances against it to be vigorous at all times and in all in all conditions. Even where there is at least suspicion. Sin is always acting, always conceiving, always seducing, always tempting. So whether or not you're in the throes of an intense battle with temptation or whether you seem to be on cruise control as it were, temptation is always active and out to get us, isn't it? And if we're not attentive, we'll pay. My goal today is to help you see that temptation is a problem, see temptation as it is so that you will be more and better equipped to deal with it in a positive way that will bring glory to God and hopefully joy through victory to you and me. So as you know, James is a a letter written to a group of dispersed Jews because of persecution who needed to examine the authenticity of their faith. And I wanna suggest to you that this book was not just for them. The Holy Spirit knew that we needed to hear these things. Uh, And so it was included in the canon for us because we live in a culture that wants to minimize everything except our leisure and standard of living, even in the church. Uh, We've seen the church try to reduce the differences between the world and Christians so that we fit in somehow in our culture. In such an age of easy believism and the secularization of the church, I think we need to take a hard and careful look at ourselves and see if we cut the spiritual mustard To see if we're doing battle with sin and temptation as scripture tells us we must. So thinking about James, in chapter 3 verses 13 through 18, he summarizes the main point of his book, his letter. um, And he summarizes it by telling us that there there is at the center of the Christian experience a choice to be made. Uh, The the choice is to follow God or follow the world. uh, To embrace the wisdom from above or embrace the wisdom from the world. To be a friend of God or to be a friend of the world. This is constantly before the Christian on numerous levels and in different categories. But this is what we each face. And each section of the book of James presents this dichotomy. James includes a series of tests and presents a choice between honoring God or honoring self and following the world. Each of these tests that that we'll encounter in this book will also be viewed as temptations. Temptations to submit ourselves to God or, or to submit ourselves to the world. The temptation to follow the worldly crowd or to follow Jesus. The test of faith is to examine ourselves to see how we're going to respond in the face of these temptations. So that's what the book of James is about. That's why we're studying it. I want us to grapple with the important questions of authentic faith. I want you to examine your life. I want to examine my life. And so we find ourselves here in this great but small book in the New Testament. We began a few weeks ago by looking at verses 2 through 4. And in those verses, James introduces his first test of faith, which is trials. Every one of us encounter trials. How you view them, how you deal with trials is something that will reveal the authenticity of your faith. If you're one who will accept trials joyfully, realizing that they're from the hand of God for your good, for your spiritual growth, then that is an indication, at least, of the authenticity of your faith. If you're one who resists and chafes under trial and complains about trial, then there might be something that you want to consider concerning the authenticity of your faith. And I'm not saying, and I want to say this often, as we study the book of James, That if you fail, then most likely you're not a Christian. If you fail, you're most likely failing. That's simply all I'm saying. But what is the trajectory of your life? If you look and examine the trajectory of your life, is your life moving Godward or worldward? Which is it? That's what James wants you to consider. He wants you to think about your life. Are Are you moving towards God as a general rule or are you moving away from Him as a general rule? Now we come today to verses 12 through 18. We're going to wrap up this first test of the authenticity of our faith, the test of trials, by looking closely at these verses, and I think they're critically important. Let me read for you verses 12 through 18, and then I'll comment on them. It says this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought, brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So here we have an important conclusion to the first test of our faith. Now, I want, to, I want to make a point here that's, that's going to help you understand the outline that's in front of you. Trial, the word trial, and the word temptation are the same Greek word, parosmos. It's translated in verse 2 and 12 as trial, but when we get to verses 13 and 14, it's translated temptation. And James does this for a strategic reason, the, the same word in the Greek language can have a few different nuances. And you say, well, why, why do they translate it in this verse that way and in the other verse the other way? Well, because the same reason that you and I understand the word English word see differently. I looked the word see up in the dictionary, and there are 29 different ways to translate the word see in our language. Like, for example, I see you right, right where you're sitting. I can see you. Or the usher might say, I'll see you to your seat. It's the same word, different meaning. Or, oh, I see what you mean. It's it's a word of understanding. And so, we have all these different words, all these different translations for the, or interpretations of the word see. It's the same way in the Greek language or any language for that matter. The same word can be translated different words. And James uses this word specifically to communicate something important to us about both meanings, tests and trials. So let's look, first of all, at the blessing of parasmos, the blessing of trials. In verse 2, James says to count it all joy when you encounter parasmos, trials and hardships, because these things, these trials and hardships, produce steadfastness. And what does steadfastness do for the believer? It leads us to spiritual maturity, or James calls it completeness. In verse 12, he says that all those who have stood the test of trial are blessed. Same word, parosmos. So the question I want to ask you, have you successfully endured a trial in your life? Have you come out the other side of that trial, still loving and believing in Jesus? Or has that trial totally interrupted your faith, your life with Christ? Has your faith stood up under the test or the scrutiny of that particular trial? And if so, what would be your reward? What would be your blessing? to follow James's words? Well, in verse 12, James goes to the obvious place of heaven as the place of reward when he mentions the crown of life. Do you see that in verse 12? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he received the crown of life. Sounds like something we all want. The crown of life is to be rewarded to all believers. If our faith is genuine, we will one day be in the presence of Jesus with the crown of life as a reward. I bet you all can't wait to be wearing a tiara around in eternity. But there's an interesting element to this crown of life James is describing. It's not that we'll be getting a physical crown of some type that's going to have the word and life emblazoned across it. So, not to disappoint you, but you aren't going to be receiving a tiara in heaven one day that says life on it. The crown is life itself. That's the crown. This means, if Jesus is accurate, in John 3, 36, when he said that if we simply believe in the Son, we have eternal life, present tense, it means that we have now the crown of life. Once our faith has been authenticated, we have the crown of life. Once our faith has been demonstrated to be genuine... We can be assured that we're saved, that we have eternal life, that, that, we can, that we know Jesus. I don't know about you, but that is a wonderful thought to me. One who has struggled with the assurance of his salvation for much of his adult life, that's good news to me. You can be assured that you are saved. That's the crown of life. And that happens in this life. Eternal life in the present life results in blessing, happiness, fulfillment. Knowing that you're on your way to heaven is a a great source of joy to those who know it. The blessing of happiness and joy is not found in many places. It's not the kind of thing that we find under every rock in our day. This kind of blessing that James is describing is elusive and in constant demand. Oh, certainly we can go to the library and find books that promise Happiness or go online and and read a blog or article about the promise of happiness and fulfillment, but usually we're disappointed. No, this kind of blessing or happiness outside of the prescribed condition that God requires is unavailable. Since God has made us, He gets to determine what it is that will bring us ultimate joy. Uh, he, He gets to decide what it is that will fulfill us, make us happy or blessed. And to discourage us from chasing idols or cheap substitutes, God doesn't allow hollow things to fill us. He withholds blessings and happiness until we seek it in the correct places. Charles Spurgeon said, Blessedness is a thing that cannot be found beneath the moon, apart from him who sits above the moon. So where are those God-ordained places to find happiness and blessing? The Bible tells us, the Bible gives us hints, doesn't it? Uh, We've spent some time recently in Psalm 119 that begins how? Blessed is the man whose walk is blameless, right? So that kind of blessing, blessing from God, happiness, joy, fulfillment, comes from people who are obedient, according to Psalm 119. And then in Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are those poor in spirit. Blessed are those who approach God in humility. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. All the Beatitudes we read in Matthew chapter 5. There we find the blessing that God has for us. And then we come to James and we read this Beatitude in verse 12. What's it say? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So where do we find God-ordained places of happiness and blessing? Here in the scriptures. So if you want to be blessed or happy, listen to him who speaks, who knows what he's talking about. Listen to the Holy Spirit who speaks through the pen of his servant James here. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Now, let me unpack that a little bit. Blessing comes within trials in life. Blessing is not found in the absence of trial. It's foolish to seek a life free from trial because the blessed one, the happy ones, are those who have experienced and endured trials, according to James. We cannot say that we are blessed until our faith has been tried and proven, until we've had our faith tested, until we've endured the test of God's great testing grounds called life. Then we are blessed. Then we're assured of genuine saving faith if we pass the test. That's what James is saying. Untried faith is questionable faith. Is it really faith if it's not tested? I'm not certain it is. Ask if you would buy a mattress without at least having a 30-day money-back guarantee. We wouldn't. Why? Because we'd want to test it. Uh, Those of us who like ice cream know what the pink spoon at Baskin and Robbins means. Right? We get to test ice cream for free is what that means. If this is a revelation to you, be, be warned. It's, it's, those pink spoons are important. We like those things because we get to test. Uh, we, we get to test and look at, have our friends look at a home that we want to buy to make sure it's what we want. So if your faith has never been tested, you can hardly be described as a blessed one, in, at least in James' vocabulary, Or I would say in any any biblical vocabulary. Many times I hear people say that they're experiencing a blessed season of life. You ever heard someone say that? I'm experiencing a blessed season of life. And what are they saying? I'm free from difficult circumstances. I'm free from trials right now. James would say that's not blessing. Because blessed is the man who is steadfast under trial, in trial, during trial. Faith that will not hold up under strain is not faith. A love that cannot withstand the test of love is not love to God. I think we can understand then that we are not blessed if we are protected from trials. And so to ask such things of God is to ask him to remove his blessing from us. And those of you who are experiencing what you think is an abnormal amount or more than your fair share of trials are actually experiencing the love of God firsthand. We have to go through trials. But the blessing also not only comes in this life, it obviously comes in the life to come, doesn't it? This is what he says. We can't get away from this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast for when he has stood the test, he will receive, that's future tense, so James's crown of life has, all, has, has got logical implications. Uh, there, there's no doubt that the New Testament writers had the view of a heavenly reward for those who remain faithful in this life through our earthly trials. Jesus himself said in the Sermon on the Mount that you're blessed if you hold up under trial. Paul in 2 Timothy 4, 8 anticipates a reward in heaven for being faithful on earth. And then in Revelation 22, Jesus himself said that he will bless those who remain faithful during this lifetime. So there's good reason, reason to view the primary meaning of James's comment in verse 12 as a heavenly reward, but I didn't want you to miss the importance of a earthly reward, a here and now reward. What's my point? The point is remain steadfast under trial because God will reward you in this life and in the next. That's the point of verse, or uh, point one. Let's move on to the next. The source of parosmos. What is the source of parosmos? And I use parosmos because it includes two words in our English language, trial and temptation. So let me back up a little bit and remind you of the double meaning of parosmos. In verse two and 12 it's translated trial, but in verses 13 and 14 it's translated temptation. So let's look at trial versus temptation. Uh, there is a difference between the translations of trial and temptation because of the nuances that are important for understanding what James is saying. And the nuance in verses in verses 13 and 14 has to do with the inner enticement towards sin. James is teaching that God tests us but doesn't tempt us. He will test the authenticity of our faith by creating an occasion, but he will never cause us to sin. The test comes from God, but the temptation comes from the individual. Let me give you an illustration of this. The math teacher gives a test for the purpose of showing what the student knows, but if the student hasn't learned, what happens at test time? Failure happens at test time. The test didn't cause the failure, it revealed the failure. What caused the failure was a lack of discipline, lack of attention, lack of intellect. All those things combined, maybe. The test simply revealed it. The test was the occasion, not the cause of the failure. It wouldn't be fair for the student to say, if that stupid teacher hadn't tested me, I wouldn't have gotten an F. Although many students say that. Tests are simply the occasion. The individual is the cause of poor grades. So is it Satan, God, or me? Which one is it? in your trials and temptations. Will Rogers once said that there are two eras in American history, the passing of the buffalo and the passing of the buck. Along with the same line of reasoning, someone said, to err is human, to blame it on the divine is even more human. Blaming God is common, isn't it? It's easy to blame God, especially those of us who believe he's sovereign. I mean, he, he put me in this place. If it wouldn't have been for him, I wouldn't have done this. Does that sound eerily familiar from anybody that knows anything about Genesis? Do you remember what happened in Genesis? This kind of blame isn't new to you and me. It seems like it's been going on since day one. God placed Adam and Eve in the garden, told them not to eat of the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they did. They sinned. And God confronted them and Adam said, God, if you wouldn't have given me this woman, this woman is the problem. You know, I've said this before to you men, but that, that argument doesn't work well. This woman. Um, so it, well, the interesting thing is Adam didn't stop with Eve. It wasn't just Eve's fault, it was God's fault. If you hadn't have given her to me. And what was the option, Adam? <laughs> And then, of course, to make sure you women don't think you get off scot-free, she blamed the serpent. It was the snake's fault. This is classic. It's been repeated in every sinner who has ever lived. James says there's no room for this. No, it's not the devil that made you sin. And it's not God that made you sin. You are responsible for your sin, is what James is saying. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called The Freedom of the Will, and in that book he argued that every human being always and only do what they want to do. You may want to say that someone or some circumstance caused you to do a certain thing or the other that made you sin, but the bottom line of every decision, according to Edwards, is a personal desire to do so. The reason you sin is because you want to. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Lured and enticed are words used in the Bible to describe sexual seduction. These verses are actually very helpful and practical in helping us understand how temptation works in our lives. Verses 13 and 14 say, once sinful seduction has worked, once the lure has got your attention, sin is conceived and birthed. After seduction has done the job, after the lure has got our attention, then It's conceived in us and gives birth to sin. It continues to procreate and gives birth to a grandchild James calls death. Now, I want you to look at the word desire in verse 14. That word comes from the Greek word epithumia. And it's, I think, more clearly translated fatal attraction. Not just desire, but fatal attraction. It's an over-desire is what James is, or how James is using it. Our English word epicenter comes from the Greek word epithumia. And of course, we know what the meaning of epicenter is, right? We, we hear it when there's talk of an earthquake. The epicenter of the earthquake was, fill in the blank. And so our own desires, James is saying, are the epicenter of our sinful choices. So desire is is not just wanting bad things, although, of course, wanting bad things is sin. Epithumia, desire, is wanting things badly, over-wanting things, so much so that you are fatally attracted to them, and sin is birthed, and you're on your way to death. Sin is not so much that we do bad things again, but doing bad things is sin, James is saying that sin is over-wanting something. It's that we want things too badly. We over-want pleasure. We over-want money. We over-want praise. We over-want food. In the Old Testament, God spoke of Israel's sin as spiritual adultery. James does the same thing in chapter 4. He calls Christians spiritual, spiritual adulterers. So if James', is, James is thinking is as follows... If God is our spiritual husband, then sin, is a, then, then sin is that thing that seduces us into the arms of other lovers. We are unfaithful to God when we think that other things can fulfill us better than he, our spiritual husband, can. So what are the lovers James has in mind? <clears throat> well, I think it's this. It's anything that gives us our identity more than Christ. I think that's the message of the New Testament. A lover, a foreign lover, an adultering lover is anything that gives us our identity more than Christ. That becomes our fatal attraction. That's the epicenter of our sin. Does your identity come from being a great mom? How about a faithful, hardworking husband? A good student? A physically good looking person, a health nut, a fitness freak. Where do you get your identity? Is it from your possessions, your home, your cars, your retirement account? Why does physical adultery happen in marriage? Well, I, I've counseled a few marriages that have had this issue, and it's rare that they were so unhappy with their spouse they went out and had an affair. Very uncommon. It's usually because the unfaithful person began to feel insecure about something in their life and their sinning partner were able to make them feel okay about that, whatever that was. That person came along at the right time and told them they were great and gave them the strokes that they were longing for and that sinning partner gave the adulterer a reason to feel good about themselves. They reinforced a false identity. This is what happens when we sin. We believe the lie that this thing, money, sex, pornography, gossip, gluttony, will make us feel better about some deficiency. Instead of running to God in Christ, we want a shortcut and we take it. We want to feel better now. We want to be fulfilled now. We want to have this emptiness and insecurity gone, this sadness in our rearview mirror. And so, this thing, shopping spree, visit to pornography, a little bit of gossip, a little bit of more food, does the trick for a while. Sin is finding our ultimate satisfaction in anything other than God. And James is zeroing our focus on this. It's not bad to want to work and do it excellent, it's not wrong to want to be very physically fit. It's not wrong to want to look nice. It's not even bad to like to eat. What makes those things sin is when we overwant them to the point of getting our identity from them. We, we exchange our identity in Christ as our source of fulfillment and ultimate joy for an identity in money, sex, leisure, reputation, possessions, etc. God calls that spiritual adultery. So when the epicenter of your life is no longer Christ, James says, you've been seduced. You've become a spiritual adulterer. When that happens, once desire is conceived, it gives birth to full-on sin. Physical conception, of course, is imperceptible to the human eye at first, but soon becomes obvious. And what was once on the inside comes out for all to see literally once sin is obvious it leads to the only possible end death which is why john owen says be killing sin or it will kill you you cannot hide it for long the seduction of it for us christians is that we think that we can have it both ways listen closely christian We think that as long as we keep praying, keep attending church, keep giving, we can just have a little self-worth, a little personal identity from cheap substitutes. We seduce ourselves with these thoughts and convince ourselves that it's okay to have some, even if it's a little, self-worth and joy from being a good mom. As long as I act like a Christian. But here's the thing, friends. God doesn't want us acting like Christians. He wants us being Christians. Being a Christian is embracing Christ as our sole source of identity. Being Christian is leaving the world's lies behind and straining for Christ and his kingdom. So where do all these sneaky sins begin? Is it God, is it Satan? If it's God, he's sovereign over all things. We can make an argument for that so we'd be able to blame him, right? James says we can't do that. How about the devil? No. Can't do that either. James says our sins are hatched in a more personal place. James says that all sins are incubated in our own hearts. All sin. That's the epicenter of our desire. What about that neighbor who parks their cars on your side of the street? What about that teacher who picks on you or that boss who isn't fair with you? Can't we at least shift some of the blame to them? Wouldn't that be convenient? The person who reacts negatively to being unfairly treated is protecting something that isn't up to them to protect. It's up to God to do that. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not up to us to right wrongs or to make sure things are fair. If friends, Christian friends, sin is tricky. And it sneaks up on us. We need to be careful with it. So protecting yourself is a pride issue. I'm I'm not saying you shouldn't protect yourself in the face of a criminal trying to do you harm. I'm talking about day-to-day relationships, protecting your territory. Lying comes from fear, for example. Defensiveness comes from pride. So sin is a fatal attraction that conceives all those troubling emotions that are deep in our hearts that will lead to sinful behavior. They come because we're seduced by one of our false lover gods. Whatever that may be. James says, then, after desire is conceived, after you've been lured, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. How do we escape this horrible reality? We're all in it. There was no one in this room who is not connected to this problem. How can we escape this kind of parosmos? Well, thankfully, we have the word of God in front of us and he always gives us direction and an answer. You see, as Christians, our life goal is not to avoid difficulties and trials, that kind of parosmos, at all costs, because God brings them to grow us to maturity. But one of the goals in the Christian life is to avoid falling into temptation, falling into sin, that kind of prosmos. We are to avoid those things. So what is the answer? I'm going to give you a few, but they are all directly connected to one person. Romans 5.19 here gives us a real clear picture. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men... So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, that's the first Adam married to Eve, one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, us in this room. So by one man's obedience, the husband of the church, your spiritual husband, if you're in Christ, by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Friends, the answer, The hope of your temptation is Christ. Let me explain that to you. Thomas Chalmers was a great Scottish preacher in the 1840s. His most famous sermon was, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. wish I could name my sermons with such splendor. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. His thesis was this, the only way to break the hold of a beautiful object on the soul is to show it an object even more beautiful. Does that make sense to you? See, what, what Chalmers is saying, what James is saying, what Jesus is saying, what Paul is saying, is you can't just say no to temptation when you find out that your heart has been captured by something worldly. Saying no just doesn't work. Although that is a favorite strategy of mine in pastoral counseling, it doesn't work most of the time. Just saying no isn't sufficient. Sometimes it's important to say no, but it can't solve all our temptation issues. What is it? The answer to difficult temptation is not simply saying no, but developing a new spiritual passion. For Christ. So compare Jesus to your temptation, would be the encouragement. John Owen, again, in his book, Overcoming Sin and Temptation, do not seek to empty your cup as a way to avoid sin. That sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Let's just empty the cup. So Owen says that doesn't work. Saying, no, it just doesn't work. But rather, seek to fill it up. Fill your cup up with the spirit of life so there is no longer room for sin. Friends, Owen is saying, you must fall in love with Jesus. And you and I have good reason for that, don't we? Do we not, as Christians, have good reason to be in love with Christ? I mean, uh, Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, Christ gave himself up for you if you are in the church, if you're in Christ. Don't you see what Christ has done? Think about that when you're faced with temptation. Jesus was stripped so you could be clothed, He was disfigured so you could be beautiful, He died so you could live. What temptation has done that for you? Any? None? No. Our sins have done nothing for us but draw us into darkness and despair. And yet we continue to follow them into those dark places. But look at what Jesus has done. Fall in love with him. This is really the only true way, the only biblical way, the only God-glorifying way over a stubborn temptation. Are you facing a temptation you just can't seem to kick? Compare him to Christ. Compare that to Christ. The only way to break hold of an attractive object, Chalmers says, is to show it a more beautiful one. Compare it to Christ. This is the expulsive power of a new and greater affection. So instead of saying no, you go to a much greater and deeper motivation. I want to suggest that you can escape any temptation if you view it as a competing lover of the lover of your soul. Anything that is in competition with the lover of your soul can be dismissed with thoughts of Christ. That thing, that attitude, whatever is tempting you, whatever is competing with the beauty and value of Christ can be jettisoned with simple thought of Christ. This is why we studied Hebrews so that you would be convinced that Christ is better than whatever it is that tempts you, that draws you away from him. This is why we dove into Psalm 119, convince you that walking with Christ is the better path. Do you remember, to go back up a few verses here in James 1, do you remember what he told the person being tempted by poverty? Look in your Bible there real quick. You know. What's he say to the person being tempted by poverty? Did he tell him just to say no to his bitterness? No. He told him to boast in his high position. It sounds a little odd to us, doesn't it? Hey, poor guy, boast in your high position. That's counterintuitive, but it makes total sense if you know Jesus. Because that poor guy knew Christ. Christ. That poor guy was in fellowship with Christ, union with Christ. In comparison to Christ, why be bitter? What is there to be bitter about? He gave the same strategic encouragement to the rich man. Instead of being drawn away by his arrogance over his wealth, what did he say? Consider the lowness of your position. Consider Christ's lowliness for you. Let me give you a secret. Do you like secrets? Here's a secret. Dealing with temptation has only one answer. It's the same answer James gave the rich and the poor man. Compare Christ. Run to Christ. Embrace Christ. See Jesus as more beautiful, more attractive, more fulfilling, more satisfying, more joy-inducing than that temptation. Temptation. This, I've experienced this personally on many occasions, and Psalm 63.3 has been the source of much victory in my own life with temptation. It says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. In comparison to all the things that life throws at you, it's nothing compared to the love of Christ. Compare whatever it is that you struggle with to the love of Christ. That love is better than life itself. That love draws us away from that, the precipice of temptation. Back to our friend John Owen. Were our affections filled, taken up, and possessed with these things, these Christ things, what access could sin with its painted pleasures its sugared poisons with its envenomed baits have unto our souls? What's the answer? None. Zero. (laughs) Absolutely nothing. You know how you conquer sin and temptation? Get to know Jesus. It's the only way. There's not a two-step plan, a 12-step plan, a 30-step plan. Get to know Jesus. Use his gifts. Use what he's given. Look at verses 17 and 18 of James 1. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from where? Above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. When Jesus went through his temptation in the Gospels, did he conquer temptation because he was God? No, he did not. He conquered temptation because he used the same things you have access to. The Holy Spirit and the word of God. That's how he conquered the temptation that he faced. Those are his gifts to you and me. Do you remember what he said in John 14? I'm going to go away so you can have the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go away so you can actually do battle with temptation. And you would say, man, I wish Jesus was here. It's better that Jesus is gone, friend. Because now you have the Holy Spirit who can do battle with you hand-to-hand combat with temptation. And not just that, but the Word of the Spirit, the Word of Christ, the thing that you hold in your hand that's open to James right now. That's a thing Jesus used repeatedly in his temptations, didn't he? The Word of God says was Jesus' answer to temptation. So you have Jesus' strategy. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the Word of God. And to make it easier for us, Jesus said, I'm going to give you one more thing. It's called the church. The church, something Jesus didn't have access to in his temptation. You and I have the church. Owen says, let a soul exercise itself to a communion with Christ in the good things of the gospel. Things like pardon of sin, fruit of holiness, Hope of glory, peace with God, joy in the Holy Spirit, dominion over sin, and he shall have a mighty preservative against all temptation. Use what Christ has given. Don't sit here and moan about your struggle with sin if you don't use what you've been given to fight with. That makes no sense, not even to you who say it. Jesus endured trials and temptation with a strategy, and he's given us the elements of that strategy. Are you taking advantage of them? Are you in church? Are you taking advantage of the resources that God has given you here at Sun Valley? Have you connected with other soldiers who are in the same identical battle as you are with sin? Have you locked arms with them in small groups, in Timothy group, in Sunday seminars, in prayer meetings, first Wednesday? Are you using the biblical, godly, Jesus-tried strategy for beating temptation? Friends, what a practical passage sits in front of us. You and I can win the battle. We can beat temptation. Everything we need for life and godliness has been given to us in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, I think your spirit is pierced the soul through your word and yet pierced it in a necessary and good way God I ask that you would have mercy on us your people here in this room as we consider our own lives examine our own walk with Christ look at the the uh, identity with which we live for which we live God do your work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit transform us by your Spirit and your word help us to access the gifts that have been given from the Father above so that his children can walk faithfully godly righteous lives with Christ our Savior. God, have mercy on us. Strengthen us for the battle. Guide us into fellowship. Guide us into the word. Meet us here, Holy Spirit. Do your work. And we pray this in the name of our Savior, the one who was tempted in all ways like we, but without sin. The one who's given us the strategy, we pray in his name that you would accomplish these things in us for your glory and our joy. We pray this now. Amen.